We have Charlene Hunter-Galt, who is the foreign correspondent with NPR, and I believe you're based out of Johannesburg. And then we also have Greg Mortensen. He's the co-founder and executive director of the Central Asia Institute and author of two books, The Three Cups of Tea and Stones into Schools. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to have that, or we're going to have... Cool. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Becky. And it's such a pleasure to be here, to be here in Aspen. Um, I first came to Aspen many years ago with my dearest friend, Ed Bradley. So whenever I come here, I always feel his spirit. And it's so nice to see all of you. And to meet a man I've heard so much about. Um, I live on Martha's Vineyard half the year and half the year in Johannesburg. And Greg, like everybody else in the world, wants to know, what are you doing here if you live in Johannesburg during the World Cup? Well, I'll tell you later. This is Greg's night. I'll ask you <laughs> but um, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Half the year I spend in America, half the year I spend on Martha's Vineyard. And last night, I was telling a dear friend of mine that I couldn't stay up late because I had a 7 o'clock flight to get here to Aspen. And she said, oh, what are you going to be doing in Aspen? I said, well, one of the things I'm going to be doing is interviewing Greg, Mort Greg Mortensen. And she said, oh, my God, oh, my God. And that's all she could say for the next five minutes was, oh, my God, oh, my God, you're going to interview him, oh, my God, oh, my God. So this book belongs to me. It was in my package. But before I go, I'm going to have you sign it sign to my it. good friend so she can go, oh, my God, oh, my God, you didn't do that. <laughs> um, you know, this past week, some of you might have heard about this, and I won't call any names, but you might recognize this quote. Uh, the quote is, the one thing you don't do is engage in a land war in Afghanistan because everyone who's tried over a thousand years of history has failed. Now, uh, some of you might recognize who said years. that, no, the quote was a thousand years. That's another reason this person may lose his job. But anyway, um, uh, this person obviously uh, had never heard of Greg Mortensen, one of the few people in the world, because if he had, he would know that there is a better way uh, than war and that there have been some successes uh, that had nothing to do with the kinds of battles that we're currently experiencing and facing in that country. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about how to um, fight a war, but not with bullets and bombs and what do they call those things that fly by themselves, drones. Yeah, we're going to find out how to do it with books and literacy and heart. Uh, which our guest certainly has a lot of, in addition to other things. Um, and we're going to have a nice uh, little Q&A between the two of us, and then because I'm told that everybody in this room knows everything there is to know about Greg Mortensen, I'm sure you've come armed with questions. So I'll spend a little time with questions, and then we'll go to the audience and have you uh, either tell them how wonderful he is or ask questions. But first, we're going to get a little sense of um, the terrain, the territory in which he has had such enormous success. And for that, uh, I would like to now call on Greg to introduce um, the uh, film that we're about to see that was made in the territory where he works.
Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. I think this is my fourth time. The first time I came to Aspen a decade ago, my, my car broke down down the road and I got a lift and I got here three hours late and it was snowing and I couldn't find the auditorium, so it's nice to be here. Um, I also, um, it's, a, um, it's really an honor to be with you. Um, thank you. Um, finally meet you in person. Um, this uh, is a 12-minute DVD we will play. It's called Stones into Schools, and it's basically tying together. It's uh, done recently um, by Mike Simon, who is from Colorado, and it um, kind of ties in together Afghanistan, education, landmines, and, and also kind of making the decision between security and education. So without further ado, if you can go ahead and hit it. Turn the lights down a little bit. Can the lights go down a little? Mm-hmm. We'll work it. I think we got it. There we go. It's on.
Well, no one's busy having um, so the idea of being able to attend classes and then have them uh, exceeded. You know, busy having a formal exam as a goal guy. I met Goma Tomarzan in uh, 2003. What I remember about him, he was a very bright student. He was very intelligent. He was so excited about the possibility of going to this school that he would herd his goats up to the construction site every day. himself through an intense personal tragedy, uh, having lost his son. What he did with his life was go and learn how to live for his life for the other children and other fathers in Christ did not have to go through that same thing. But there's something about his first year, the challenge about his first year there, that, uh, that the beauty Thank you. 
important to remember the people who had to do that sacrifice. And, and that's part of their education. Mike Simon, who did this, is he's in the back there. Mike, can you talk here for a second? Thank you. Mike, can you just um, explain for one minute about <laughs> about the DVD? He, he did this. Um, I didn't have any part to do with it. I love it when Greg pulls me up on stage. Um, Greg has done a really remarkable job of documenting his entire journey over the last 15 or 16 years. And pretty much everything that you have, uh, any picture that you ever see in any of the books uh, also exists in video. We've only recently started archiving this stuff, and I just said, Greg, this is just some amazing footage that people really need to see, and this is actually a, a rough cut of, the, uh, of a longer film. Uh, it's been re-edited even since then, but um, uh, just... Uh, we hope to uh, use the footage uh, for web material and also uh, for education and outreach programs. And I want to thank you for doing such a great job of documenting the journey. So, Greg thanks, Mike. Thank you. Greg was telling me as you saw him speaking monosyllables in the room and sort of nodding his head that he now really speaks the language much better than then. <laughs> What's it called? It's Pashto and Dari and Waki and Balti and Barushiski and Hazara and, and you could do them all. Well, kind of, not all of them very well, but... Let's say, let you say good evening to everybody in Pashto. Uh, um, good evening. Good evening. Hello. Well, first, you just say, Juras, Bakher, Hoboste. I'd ask you, how are you? How's your family? How's your house? Um, you want to make sure you check it. Everything is okay first. And the interesting thing is if, if someone asks you how you are in the U.S., you say, I'm fine. But over there, if you're not fine, you don't say that you're fine. <laughs> and I like that. It's they tell much, you. It's more candid. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you grew up, part of your early childhood was in Africa and is that where you got your wanderlust from because you know Greg's first book as you know was called um, three, three Cups of Tea three right but as I was reading about his background I was thinking you know he could have had an earlier book that was called I was a bit of a nut 
at the beginning of my life. <laughs> How on earth did you get to this remote part of uh, Afghanistan to start with? Because you, we start here sort of in the middle of the story. But how you got to the, first of all, to Afghanistan and Pakistan, and then into these rural areas where nobody ever goes. Is that from being an African, partly? Well, perhaps. Um, I, I, I was born in Minnesota in 57, but when I was three months old, my parents went to Tanganyika, which now is Tanzania, where I grew up for 15 years. And my parents were teachers at a girls' school. And subsequently, my mother started school, and my, my father started a hospital. And so I guess um, part of this is in my genes. Also, I found out uh, recently that my great-great-great-grandfather, Carl Ellertsen, was, he was from Tromso in northern Norway. 1867, he came across the ocean to Quebec, and then by ox cart to Starbuck, Minnesota in 1868. Um, the community wanted to start a Lutheran church. That's what you did first. You build a church. But he insisted they build a school first, and then the next year they built the church. He said, um, we're going to have literacy before we have, you know, a church. And uh, it was very controversial at the time, but he got a school established. So maybe part of it's in my genes. Uh, I think the other thing that as a child, I watched my father toil. It was very difficult for him to raise funds and $6 million and get the hospital started in Tanganyika. And he also always... Um, insisted that an African was in charge, not an Mzungu, meaning a white man. And many times that didn't go very well with the Europeans and Americans because they, they, they wanted to get rid of him because he always had Africans running the show. And then finally in um, 1971, when the hospital, uh, Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center, opened up, my father got up during the opening and he made a prediction. He told everybody that in 10 years, every single department head of the hospital would be from Tanzania. So basically my father got fired within two months <laughs> for having the audacity to believe that this hospital could be run by Africans. And we came back to the States and unfortunately my father died from cancer. But 10 years later we got the annual report from the KCMC hospital and all the department heads were trained and they were from Tanzania. And even today, four decades later, all the department heads are from Tanzania. So. Um, and that was an important lesson for me that people can be empowered. And I think we often, we, it's innate in most humans, we want to help people. It's, it's, it's just within all of us. But what's really important, I think, is not helping people, but empowering people. And there's a very big difference between helping or enabling and empowering. I want to get to that, but you didn't start by empowering people. You started by empowering yourself to climb a mountain, and that's how you ended up empowering people. So tell us a little bit about that, because you almost killed yourself. Um, well, let's see. Or nature almost killed you. Let's put it yeah, that I way. To, I very briefly is, how many of you read Three Cups of Tea? So, Okay, so maybe, maybe we don't need to tell maybe this story too much. Yeah, but it's a good story. You tell it. They want to hear it from you, don't you? Uh, or do you? I grew up in, when I was, for my 12th birthday, I kept bugging my dad to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. It's, it's the highest mountain in Africa. It was in our backyard. And so when I was 11 months, or 11 months, 11 years and, and uh, 10 months, my father uh, let me climb the mountain. I almost died at the time. It was before, it was 1969. It was before haste and hapes and cerebral edema and so I pretty much I made it to the top but I almost died during the, the ascent and that started my love for mountaineering 
Um, I first went to Pakistan in 1993 to climb K2 to honor my sister, Krista, who had died from severe epilepsy. Um, I spent 78 days on the mountain. I got uh, within 600 meters of the summit. I didn't quite summit. And um, coming off the mountain, I, I felt mainly that as if I let my sister down. So now I have a, one question for you, the only question I'll ask tonight. <laughs> How many of you can remember what the first chapter in Three Cups of Tea is called? See, I need some kids here. They always remember it. No, no, no. The first chapter is called Failure. And it's an important word. Um, when I submitted the original manuscript to New York to the publisher in Manhattan, they said, Greg, you never start a book with the word failure. <laughs> but I insisted on that because we all make mistakes and we all fail them. You know, we, we fail in our relationships or jobs or dreams or goals or visions. And, and I really wanted to, to take the message that really our success was based in failure originally. And you know, failure is, is something in Afghanistan and Pakistan, like in the um, northeast Pakistan are the Balti people. And the Balti originally came from Tibet six, 800 years ago during the Tibetan diaspora. Uh, and, and Balti, the language is basically classical Tibetan. But in Balti, there is no word for failure. And the closest word really means that you reached a fork in the road. And then the word for success means that you've reached your destination. Now, it's you know, interesting in English, which is a business language, we have dozens of words for failure. Flunk, bomb, screw up, you know, whatever. But imagine a language, no word for failure. And the only word comparable means you've reached a fork in the road. So um, that's, I, and, um, especially when I go to schools now, we talk a lot about failure. It's something I don't think we, we talk very much about it in our society. Mm-hmm. And you got lost and you met all these people. And the thing that fascinated me about the whole episode of your, that moment in your life is how you overcame the cultural differences, the cultural barriers. And one of the things that impressed me was that, you, you know, you, you wanted to help the people, but you also understood when you were being played. How did you figure that out? I mean, how did you, how did you begin to understand the culture, how to penetrate the culture, and how to separate out what was genuine and what was playing you? Well, I think I learned from my father originally about listening and learning. It's also about humility and respect. I, I, um, I made a lot of mistakes, although culturally my wife says I'm not one of us, meaning American. I'm, I'm from Africa. She says he's not one of us. So, when I read that, I thought she meant you were an alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I'm human. <laughs> um, and I think, um, but I, I had to learn a lot of. I've learned a lot of lessons from mentors or older men and women. And um, also. The more I do this, I'm really convinced it's something that we can learn from the people there. And um, I'm saying this because I've, I visit about, I know, Christian, Christian, how many schools do we go to every year? 120? So we go to about 100 to 200 schools a year. Um, that's Christian Leidinger. She's our Pennies for Peace director from Evergreen, Colorado. So... And we have a program called Pennies for Peace, which is 
Um, it teaches ch children about philanthropy and about cultural things. But the other thing is that we've really incorporated in it is I always ask students, this could be from kindergarten all the way through the U.S. Naval Academy, I ask the students, how many of you have spent a lot of time, and we've quantified that now by about 10 hours, with an elder or your grandparents talking about the Depression or World War II or the Vietnam or the Civil Rights Movement. And you want to guess what the average is in the U.S.? It's about 5 to 10% of the kids say they've spent more than 10 hours with an older person about talking to them when they were young. So now if I ask that same question in Johannesburg and Soweto or Tanzania or Afghanistan or rural Pakistan or India, 90 or 100% of the hands come up. And I think that's one of the greatest tragedies in our country, in our society, that we've lost that tradition, learning from our elders. And we learn from our elders about our folklore, our culture, our heritage, our traditions. And so one of the things we do in our Pennies for Peace program now, Pennies for Peace, is we have the students uh, actually go spend time with an elder. It's their summer assignment. And it's, it's just been so exciting to see when kids spend time with their elder, what they learn from them. And, um, later on, we get into some discussion. Well, that is one of the things also when I talk and advise with the U.S. military or aid groups or humanitarian groups, it's imperative that we empower the elders in a country like Afghanistan. Um, in Afghanistan, there are 34 provinces, and every province has shura. A shura is an elder. Um, and you have the white-haired and the gray-haired and then the black-haired. Um, the, the, you know, you always want to go for the white-haired first and then the silver-haired and the black haired and beard last. Um, that, does that make sense? The real elders. And the, um, every pro they're, these are, they're not elected. Every province has maybe 50 to 200 elders, Shura. Um, they are the power, the integrity of the country. They could be warriors, they could be poets, they could be businessmen. There's even some women who are Shura. And it's only been recently, I mean, in the last two or three years, that the international community has really started to acknowledge um, involving the elders in the consensual decision-making process. Um, after 9-11, um, two dozen countries got together in December 2001. It was called the Bonn Conference. You remember, I think you remember that. And they pledged funding, and they also decided how we are going to rebuild Afghanistan. Now, these are Western countries. But they set it up as a very centralized, deprovincialized type of system. And some of you who might have been around after World War II, you remember the Marshall Plan. And I, I, I've studied the Marshall Plan. I think it was a brilliant plan, and the architects were genius. But the, the way the Marshall Plan was designed was that it was provincialized and decentralized. In Afghanistan, we completely flipped that around. And it's only been in the last three or four years we really started to realize and acknowledge, really, it's the elders who are the real integrity in the country. And it was only... Uh, three months ago, President Obama summoned, um, he actually ironically summoned the military and the National Security Agency to advise him on what the elders are saying. Now, I wish he would at least ask the elders, but, you know, it, it was the first time our president asked, what are the elders saying in Afghanistan? And only last month, uh, June 2nd to 5th, President Karzai summoned 2,000 elders to Kabul and asked the elders, what do you think? Now, this is the first time this has happened. So um, there are some interesting things going on right now. You, you were telling me as we were watching this that um, 
this past weekend, eight Taliban kidnapped some of your workers. Tell us a little bit about that. And tell us a little bit about the challenge of the Taliban to what you're trying to do. Um, I'll give you a little, maybe a little background. Of the Taliban, well, there are many militant groups. And maybe we talk about the Taliban a little bit later, too. The, I see the Taliban as more factions and militia and uh, mafia kind of gang style. They're not this ideological entity that we think of. Um, the Taliban, in the last three years, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, have bombed, burned, or destroyed, or shut down over 2,100 schools. Um, what's interesting is that 80 or 90 percent of those schools, they're girls' schools, and they're not boys' schools. So that brings a question up: You know, why are these guys so terrified of girls' schools and not boy, you know, boys going to school? I mean, what's so scary about a little girl going to school? Well, I think it's because their greatest fear, it's not a bullet, but it's a pen. And they also fear the fact that if that girl gets an education, grows up, becomes a mother, the value of education will go on the community. And that is against the backdrop, however, of what you saw up on the screen that Mike put up there, which I think is the most incredible thing that has happened in Afghanistan, is the fact that 10 years ago, at the height of the Taliban, this is a UNICEF figure, or UNESCO also, there were 800,000 children in school. And today, right now, there's 9.2 million children in school, including 2.8 million females. And this is the greatest increase in school enrollment in any country in modern history. So one more question for you. How many of you knew about that before I just, we just told you this evening? There's, um, there's one, two. Wow, this is pretty good. Three, four. Where did you, where'd you hear about it? <laughs> tell you right. Oh, you tell you right. They heard me at Telluride, okay? <laughs> Usually, I was um, 18,000 Rotarians in Montreal. I asked them that. Not one person knew that figure. And I think um, um, I was briefing five U.S. senators last year in Capitol Hill. And after I told them that, they were all patting themselves on the back. And I said, how can you take credit for something you don't even know about? That's a politician for you. <laughs> now, but now, of course... The U.S., we deserve some credit, and we've had a part in that, but the real reason those children are in school is because of their mothers and their communities and the fierce desire for education. I saw something in one of your books about um, that, that's true, certainly in Africa, the notion that if you educate a boy, you educate an individual. If you educate a girl, you educate a nation uh, because these women um, invest different principles uh, in their in their girls is that the case and is it making a difference have you seen the education of girls that many girls making a difference in the larger attitudes in the attitudes of the larger society which are basically um, male dominated I think so um, the in in North Africa like Algeria Tunisia maybe South Africa the proverb is if you educate a girl or a boy, you educate an individual. If you educate a girl, you educate a nation. And where I learned in East Africa, it says you educate a community. And um, I really, um, that proverb, I think, really resonates. I, I've never forgotten it in my life. And what happens, I think, is, as I mentioned before, when girls get educated, um, they grow up, they become mothers, the value of education will go on their community. Um, there's many other, you know, I, I, do you want to hear about girls' education for a while? Or, mm -hmm. Okay. So why is, you know, educating girls so important? It, 
Um, number one, it, it is the most, single most impact on infant mortality, the number of kids who die before the age of one. In many areas where we work, one out of three or four children born die before the age of one, especially up in, in uh, like the north and the south uh, in uh, Uruzgan or Kandahar up in northeast Afghanistan and then in northern Pakistan. Uh, girls' education also reduces the population explosion. I th one of I th my greatest fears is um, not global warming or environmental degradation or wars, but it is the population of this planet especially if you look in three to five generations where we're headed, it's pretty frightening. And the number one way to reduce population without doing anything else is simply female literacy. And the best example is the country of Bangladesh. Um, 1970, the female literacy rate was less than 20%, and today it's tripled up to, I think, about 65%. And the average woman in Bangladesh 40 years ago with a low literacy rate had eight to nine live births, and the average woman today in Bangladesh with a literacy rate of 67% has 2.8 live births. Now, unlike Pakistan, Pakistan has the, um, it's the fourth biggest, fourth big, fastest growing country in the world. It's going to double in the next 27 years from 175 million to 350 million people, and the average female literacy rate in Pakistan is about 35%. And the only thing that Pakistan has never done in its entire history, except more recently in the last year, they've never put more than 2% of their GDP into education, and they've never had a national mandate as guaranteed in their constitution that every single child can go to school. And until that happens in Pakistan, meaning that girls can go to school, everything else we do in that country is not going to make any difference. And the quote, probably many of you have heard me say this before, that we can drop bombs or surge troops or put in electricity or build roads or hand out condoms, but if girls are not educated, the society will never change. Um, educating girls also, they generally teach their mother how to read and write. Um, boys don't do that as much. Um, when girls learn how to read and write, they often, um, the mother will ask them to read the newspaper to them. They can hear about the news going around them. And then in the context of uh, rural Afghanistan and Pakistan, when someone goes on jihad, traditionally, this is a culturally, not Islam, but traditionally, they should get permission from their mother. Now, if they don't, it's very shameful or disgraceful. When a woman has an education, she is much as likely to encourage her son to get into violence or into terrorism. And I've seen that happen over the last many years, um, the Taliban and other groups, their primary recruiting grounds are from illiterate, impoverished society because most educated women, even at threat of their lives, will refuse to allow their sons to join a militant group. How, how um, are your schools functioning given the overall situation with the war uh, in Afghanistan? Are they in such a remote areas that can, it's can not making a big difference? Or? Uh, our schools are doing very well in Regardless of the U.S. military presence, um, I, you know, whether the U.S. military is there or not, it's not going to make much difference with our schools. But the the reason is because we have a, such a close relationship with the elders in the shura. Um, this, I'm going to show you one picture up here, um, and our, our enrollments are skyrocketing. We've only had one school attacked by the Taliban. Do you want me to tell you that story? Did you? Yeah, please. Um, 2007 in the summer, this is called uh, in Char Siab Valley. 
south of Kabul near Ghazni, where just two days ago a headmaster was beheaded of a girls' school. Um, the Taliban, there's about a dozen Taliban came in at night, they beat up the night watchman, and then the, the next day they said if any girl comes to school or the teacher, we're going to kill you. And so the headmaster, he was, also had the support of the community, he notified the local militia leader in Charasiao Valley, his name is Komadan Fahim. Now Komadan Fahim is kind of a 50-50 guy, a little bit shady, but he also has two daughters in school. So he sent in his, it's called a lashkar, meaning a militia, 120 men. They killed two of the Taliban, and then they very quickly, I don't know how you say this properly, extracted information from the other Taliban. <laughs> they had gotten $3,000 from the local mullah to shut the school down. So today the mullah's in prison, along with three Taliban, and um, Commandant Fahim is a They've changed now. It's Commandant Dowd now, but they've appointed 12 Oscar. These are militia to guard the school 24 hours a day. Karen, did you go to Lalander? They're still there? The militia? They're not there? They're still there. Oh. See? How do you write a book? Karen was there a couple weeks ago, and Mike was there, but she says the militia aren't there, but he says the militia are still there. Anyways, but they're, they're generally there, but their orders are that if anybody harms anybody going to school there, you just shoot them. Now, that's not how we run a school, but that's how they run a school. Um, these men are from Urazgan province in the south. These are the Shura. These are the elders, except me. You see the scared white guy without the beard in the back? <laughs> and then you see Haji Ibrahim on the right with a white beard. He's the head of the Shura. He's the most powerful man in Urazgan. Um, one of our goals was to get a school going in Dairaud and Tarankot, which are, this is uh, one of the more, say, home of the Taliban or Mullah Omar. And we, they actually, we thought it would take us 20 years, but um, just last year, the Shura of Urzgan, they asked us to come and visit their area. And when they got done, they said, we're ready. Um, we want to um, get the girls' school running. We also, um, let me say it. They got inspired by this by visiting our school in Lalander village. These men came to the village, and, you know, they're, they're kind of scary. They have black beards and big turbans. But when they got to Lalander, they saw the giant playground. So they threw down their weapons. And then for an hour and a half, they jumped on the swings and slides, and they had this glorious time. <laughs> When they got there, they said, we're ready to build a girls' school. So that's kind of what converted them. Do you want to do your... I had one more question, but do you want to do your... Um, could talk a little bit more? Because I was just wondering about the Taliban, and, you know, given your experience in establishing these schools and interacting with the elders and having such success with the community, do you ever advise the military, or if you don't, if you did, what would you say? What would you tell them? How, how should they be doing their job differently? Because what they're doing right now doesn't, well, is it working or not? Well, actually, I, I'm a veteran. I was in the military. I was an army medic in Germany in 70, 77, 75 to 77. Um, ironically, of all the, say, our government entities, it was the military reached out to me first about four years ago, and they asked for some help and advice. And um, I, you know, I want to have a disclaimer here that we've never received a dollar federal money, 
and I never, you know, we don't have any consultancy going on with the military, I think, but I have spent significant time with our military. Um, I, I go to about two dozen military bases a year. I also talk a lot with our senior military commanders, and I think of all our government entities today, this might sound really a little crazy, but I think the military really gets it, and it's because many of our military now, they've been on the ground three or four times, and they understand it's about building relationships, it's about empowering the elders, it's about listening to people. Um, General McChrystal, for example, who was, um, let's say he retired last week, or was, um, <laughs> he replaced uh, General McKiernan, who was fired last April. General McKiernan was in charge of Afghanistan. General McKiernan was um, fired two days after he apologized for the errant bombing that killed 29 Afghan civilians near Herat. And I think his firing, they said he wasn't running counterinsurgency properly, but I think one of the reasons was because he actually apologized to the Afghan people. Uh, when McChrystal came into place, the first thing he did within a week is he asked me and a couple other, you know, crazy people, I guess we're crazy people, uh, to bring elders to have meetings with the military. This is the first time the elders in Afghanistan were talking with Americans our presence, whether it was our State Department or political leaders, and it was the, ironically the military. Um, and so we've helped, over the last year, we've helped facilitate three dozen meetings between General McChrystal and his team and the Afghan elders. Um, and during these meetings, it got very um, sometimes contentious, very heated, but over a period of time, what uh, General McChrystal implemented was, number one, the um, the uh, amount of um, concern for the errant killing of civilians. And number two, about uh, you know errant bombings. And number three, that he wanted to make it say friendly centric rather than enemy centric. So, you know, during all my discussions with General McChrystal, his team. Now, his team that was in the Rolling Stones, that was a different team. I don't know. He had a traveling team that got him into all this trouble. <laughs> but in all the meetings I had with him and his team. You know, I didn't hear once any comment that was written about in that article. And they spent a lot of time listening and learning. And my concern now is that they're going to change the military policy to be more aggressive. They're going to take less concern for civilian killings. You know, I, I think General Petraeus might continue, but, but we're going to have to see this because the American public is getting very... Um, short on tolerance for having so many troops over there, so we're going to have to see what happens. What do you think would happen to projects like yours and this awakening that of the necessity for education, especially of girls, if these troops pulled out, or do, do they matter? Well, there's, um, if you do some simple math, well, for, first of all, um, you know, if I could have Admiral Mullen here, he's our chairman, joint chief of staff, or General Petraeus, or General McChrystal, or some other commander, they would all tell you, I mean, point blank, there is no military solution in Afghanistan. They've told me that many times. The solution's a much broader solution, and it has to have much more integration of many other things. There's a great program in Afghanistan called the National Solidarity Program. This is a kind of a it's an Afghan program. It's probably the most successful program over there. Today, also, we have, um, I, 
I'm not sure the number. I think we have 96,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan. There might be 100 right now. There are 30 to 35,000 coalition troops from all the other countries, 90,000 Afghan troops. So that means 220,000 coalition troops versus 25,000 Taliban. We outnumber them 10 to 1 right now, not only in terms of manpower, but in terms of, um, you know, we have predator drones and satellites. We have a $74 billion operation during freedom budget. The Taliban budget's probably maybe $20 million. Um, so if we can't, you know, militarily have a solution, then there's got to be much broader solution. But to me, again, the irony is that's the military of all, you know, all of our leaders, and I, I hope I don't get fired for saying this, but um, they really understand that it's important that we listen to people and we empower the people. And so I'm, I'm just... Um, well, Karzai's um, been talking about in effect, buying off the Taliban or converting the Taliban, do you think they're convertible? I don't think we can pay them cash to put their arms down. I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I do think, like the National Solidarity Program has um, changed, I don't know, 20, 30,000 former Taliban now to work. Um, they have jobs, and when they have jobs, um, then, then they're willing to put their arms on, but I don't think we can just, I mean, we have to, we have to make them do something. We, we do the same thing. Um, when we build a school, we put up, we provide skilled labor and, and um, uh, materials like cement, but the community, they have to give free land, free labor, and free resources, often maybe 5,000 days of free manual labor, and what that does is it ensures a local buy-in, and that's, I think, one of the reasons none of our schools have been shut or destroyed by the Taliban. Um, the, um, and the, our government, I, again, I'm not trying to be critical, but I try to help the government. I met Senator Kerry a couple weeks ago and also talked to Senator Luger. There was a bill called the Kerry-Luger bill that was passed last, I think, December or November. It appropriated, Karen, do you know how much money? $7.4 billion to Pakistan over the next five years. At least it was going for um, infrastructure for education, healthcare. But the problem with that bill is if you study very closely, there's nothing built into the bill that there's any reciprocal part or payback or contribution from the government of Pakistan or from the provincial areas. And the other thing in the bill is it's very front heavy or um, instead of end heavy. Like if I'm going to make a deal with you, I'm not going to give you 60% of the money right now and then go see what you do. I'm going to give you 20%, be a little stingy, and then see what you do and what you contribute, and then build it from there. And that's, um, again, just throwing money at people. And um, people respect you in rural Afghanistan and Pakistan, your ability to bargain. The more you can bargain, your credibility goes up. The less you bargain and you throw money at somebody, um, then your credibility goes way down. And that's kind of our government. Our credibility is not very strong right now. One reason is we're not listening to the elders and we're not negotiating and bargaining with them. You know, it's like, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but. Let's um, take this moment and see if we have any questions from the audience. We're gonna, in a little bit, we have a, um, a presentation that um, we're gonna share with you, but let's see, you've been sitting here listening very quietly. We have a couple of people with microphones and we have a lady here on the front row and a gentleman there. We'll take those two first and then 
And please identify yourself and say where you're from. I'm Mary Torres. I'm from Oak Park, Illinois. And my question is, uh, many of our senators and representatives, as well as the administration, make the case to Karzai and others that without uh, you know, a firm commitment to uh, obliterating the corruption in the government of Af Afghanistan, they're not going to get anywhere. Is it, is it that we're not using this negotiating, bargaining, uh, carrot and stick approach? Is that why the corruption just continues at such a tremendous level? Well, there is rampant corruption in Afghanistan, and just last week, the U.S. Um, blocked $4 billion more that was supposed to go for, um, for social infrastructure. Um, I, I think one of the main problems is that the, the corruption is we're giving the money to the top officials and the ministries, but um, none, nobody at the bottom level gets any funding at the provincial or district level. And again, kind of go back to the Marshall Plan. And what happens is, like, for example, I'll just use our example. There's other organizations that do the same thing. Um, when you bring money directly into the districts, uh, when people have a project, on all of our projects, they can tell you exactly how much money was put into the project, who got the money, how the money was distributed. But um, when they have that, then they can leverage... I guess what we do to get, we constantly leverage. So we leverage at the community level, as I mentioned about the land and the labor and everything. But then we get several communities together and they leverage collectively at the pro district level. And then you can get the district level to leverage provincially at, at the provincial level. And what that does, people, when they're empowered, they can then control their corrupt politicians more. Um, and I'll, give, I'll be very candid, for example, the U.S. four years ago was concerned about corruption in Afghanistan, so they pushed the Afghan government to have a ministry of NGOs to monitor the corruption in the NGOs. Well, the ministry of NGOs basically is a way for 25% of the money to go into the pockets of the ministry of NGO people. So then I asked my, the elders, our, our um, kind of advisors, these are local, what should I do about this? Should I you know, render unto Caesar what Caesar's, or what should we do about this? So they came up with a very clever idea, they said, or bright idea. They said, just set up an Afghan NGO. So we have an NGO in Afghanistan called Marco Polo Foundation. It's an Afghan NGO. It's legally allowed to receive money from foreign countries, including the U.S. or our organization, and then they run everything, but it doesn't go through the central government. And... Um, all of that money going into that goes directly into the projects, and it's very similar to the National Solidarity Program. One of my suggestions for the, the our government is to work more with, it's called the National Solidarity Program. It's the Ministry of, um, ministry of um, Rural Reconstruction, or reclam I don't know the name, exact name, but, and, um, you know, we're, our government, we're trying very hard to build a central government there, and that's kind of the mandate, and that's what our ambassador is supposed to do in the State Department. And then the military at the same time is seeing that the, at the level of the villages and the communities, they're saying, you know, we want to be more empowered, and we need to have a less, 
lose more of a coalition and a government and a you know less centralized government, but work more at a provincial, more you know tribally based type of uh, power. And so it, that it also that's what kind of happens is it's putting our DoD and our State Department and political leaders at odds with each other. But the missing link is the Afghan elders are not involved in any of this. They they still are not. It's only starting to happen in the last few months. So. Hopefully, we can involve the elders more and, and get them. And the Taliban, they will not attack um, projects where the elders are very involved in. Also, uh, programs where the community has had so much collective input. They, they, don't, they generally don't disturb those projects. Okay. Good. Yes, sir? See, I don't know how to talk about national policies very much. So <laughs> <laughs> I always deal at the village level. So. Then we go here, 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 and then there was the gentleman over there. So here. One of the things that I think was most astonishing uh, in that first book, or memorable for me, was the dramatic demonstration of the cost of your building a school, the cost of the UN building a school, and the cost of the World Bank building a school. And of course, all of us have thought many, many times, why does so much of our funding go through those two entities who seem to increase the overhead by astronomical ways, what can we do to help money to be funneled through you instead of these organizations which seem to make it disappear? Well, well, the options are, well, of course, we have to pay taxes, and some of our tax money is going to go over there one way or the other. Um, I also, you know, it puts us, me at a dilemma, and probably contradict myself, but we don't um, receive any federal money, and we probably never will. But the reason we do that is we don't want to be perceived in Afghanistan as a arm of the U.S. government. On the other hand, we bend over backwards to try and help our government, the military, the State Department, USAID, to build relationships in the community, and also to really push them, um, again, that they need to collectively work we say on this kind of 50-50 thing where the government there, the people that are going to have to put in so much initiative um, if they want to get their own, you know, their own, own uh, schools or healthcare programs going. And it works at the district level, the community level, the provincial level. The, the only kind of place where it hasn't worked yet is at the national level. And, and it, it's very complicated because President Hamid Karzai's brother is very corrupt, and that's one of the banes of the U.S. government is how do we work with a guy who basically runs all the heroin trafficking in southern Afghanistan, and, and his, that's his brother. And, um, and on the other hand, some, some of our government do not want to acknowledge that President Karzai is the, is the president of the country. We, you say, and we keep wanting to replace him, or so, but he is right now the president. He was elected fairly or not. You know, it's the same thing here. Um, so um, anyways, um, so we, um, we do have to try and work with them, but most people, what they say is they feel totally disempowered. Their representatives, um, how do you say, the only thing that they have access to are their district leaders and this, another program called the National Solidarity Program, which is an Afghan program, but it doesn't come through the central government. We have two on this side, the young lady here and then the young man in the back of the room. Let's take the young lady first. And if you're, unless you're a Russian agent, identify yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Spencer Sassett, and I'm 
a student um, in North Carolina. But my question is, is, we did a lot of research this year on Afghanistan and the issues with education. And one of the major issues with educating females was honor killings. And I was wondering if you had any experience with that or knew anything about that or how your organization dealt with that. Do you want to? Yeah, you can explain. I can explain. Why don't you? Because no, I think you should um, explain. Because then be part of your question. I can. Um, we can. She wants. She's gonna tell a little bit about what an honor killing is. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, it is when women go abroad for education, and they sort of have outgrown their family, and they are called back from like their brother or their father, saying that something has happened. So they're sort of tricked home, and they come home and they realize that the woman has sort of outgrown their community and society and they basically kill her because she has no sense of, I guess, community or she's outgrown them, I guess. Is that correct? Please correct me if I'm wrong. And it, it does. It, honor killings do happen for that reason um, and it is ob obviously very horrific. It, it also, um, how to explain this? Often those women who have gone either to a city or abroad to get their education, um, they say the community hasn't been really involved in it. They've kind of gotten picked. They're either they're wealthy or they, they're affluent. And um, like, for example, all of our students and all the many, many other organizations, um, when the girls get a scholarship, we first make sure the community supports that scholarship. And we've had, you know, none of our, Karen, you can correct me, but none of our students have been involved in anything like that. We've had uh, attorneys, uh, now we have nurses, uh, midwives have gone back, and they've, they're warmly received by their community. And the, the other thing is, and I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm saying it's present, but the majority of women actually who leave their communities, especially the ones who are the first role models, the first woman become literate or become a nurse or midwife or teacher or lawyer or doctor, um, they're treated with quite a bit of esteem. Um, they might become a little bit of an old maid because the guys are going to say, you know, I'm not going to marry you because you're too too in intelligent. But they also become role models for the community. And um, so, I mean, it does happen. But, and again, I think the more girls can be literate and education become part of community that that's going to start um, knocking down some of the you know atrocious things that are happening in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the back the young man tell us who you are um, I'm Oscar from Los Angeles California and I have a question about three cups of tea there was a picture it was your Christmas card I think and it said, peace on earth, and you were holding a gun. I didn't really understand that. All right. <laughs> See, kids are bold enough to ask that question. What grade are you in? Fourth grade. My son's in fourth grade. And I asked my son about it, too. Um, there's a picture in Three Cups of Tea. My wife and I and our daughter, Amira, who was very young at the time, um, I think she was about a year old, we were at the Khyber Pass in, on the Afghan Pakistan border. And we had a two Kalishnikovs. My wife had one, too. And under, we made a Christmas card of it, and we said, Peace on Earth. Now, um, now I have to realize this is before 9-11. Um, this is also in the tribal areas where boys, from the time they grew up, they put a wooden 
weapon in their bed, and they're taught, they, they grew up with a weapon, and we kind of made it as a joke, and I never, I didn't even want it in the book. The publisher put it in the book. Um, again, it's probably like the Rolling Stones article, um, and and I, you know, I have over there in Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, when you show that photo, it shows the people there, it shows sensitivity and everything. Here, you know, it's people get, some people get horrified. I also, um, everybody said that made the refrigerator more than any Christmas card, and most people still have that card up on their refrigerator. So, but, um, you know, it's, um, and I, I guess what I was trying to show is that it was a very, you know, this is a, a there are weapons, people have been fighting for a long time, but also if you really ask the women there, or most men, what do they want? They'll say, we don't want our children to die, and we want our, we want our children to go to school. And that's really, I think, the main emphasis of that. But um, that, that photo is going to stay in the book, I guess. I tried to get it out of there. I didn't even want it in there, but the photo is going to stay in the book, I guess. <laughs> and tell us who you are. Um, Guy Noble. I'm, I'm an Aspen resident. I've given many of your children's books away as gifts, and I wondered if your children's book is read in the schools in Afghanistan and Pakistan, because they are lovely. Uh, uh, we have the, it's read in, in Pakistan, and um, we're going to do a children's book with stones into schools, which is more, so we're in, in, in Afghanistan, most of this three cups of tea takes place in Pakistan, and most of the stones in schools take place in Afghanistan. So um, the kids do know the story, and um, they love the story, and um, it's part of their learning experience. And um, in um, in Afghanistan, we we're doing uh, stones into schools children's and young readers book. It won't be out for a year or so. I have to, you know, listen to Manhattan sometimes. It gets a little frustrating, but. They don't want the children book out till next year, but we're going to do one in um, both Urdu and Pashto and Dari next year. Good evening. Sonia Pryor Jones from Cleveland, Ohio. Can you share with us what's next for your work in Afghanistan? What's your vision 2.0 for your work? Well, in, um, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, it varies a little. In Afghanistan, one of, one of my goals is to work myself out of this. I still, I just want to go over and drink tea. Then I don't have to do all this kind of stuff, and I just want to meet with the elders. And um, so in Afghanistan, we've set up our own NGO. Well, it's a local Afghan NGO. It's totally run by that NGO. Um, and we've also learned more and more really about what I mentioned before, empowering. Um, it took us, Karen, do you, do you know the numbers on the women's literacy centers in Afghanistan? The whole country. There was 18, right? Or Karen works with, she helps write us, so I do check my fact checking here. <laughs> okay.
Okay. So, okay, so um, basically, by it took us seven years to get about a dozen women's literacy centers going in Afghanistan. And we worked very hard. Basically, I was doing this thing called micromanagement. And then last year, my wife told me, you need to let the women run the show. So we, we got the women together. They meet once a month or twice a month. We gave the main women cell phones. And within a year, they had tripled the amount of um, women's literacy centers. And a literacy center, they not only learn how to read and write, but they learn hygiene, sanitation, nutrition. They learn about money. They also get cell phones. It's really scary when women start communicating. And, <laughs> and the women told me within a year they're going to have a 1,000 centers going. And the, many of these new centers, we hardly put a dime into them. They're, they're, they're just running on their own, and they're, they're run within their own little community. So it's... Um, but it, it had to do with, you know, putting it over to the people there. Um, the same thing in Pakistan, we're setting up um, right now. Uh, we've got a kind of main center, but then there'll be five hubs, and every hub has their own um, committee that runs everything. So, you know, hopefully in two or three years, my goal is that this will kind of be running on its own. And my other vision is, you know, this is a maybe a global vision, but what I found is by doing this i meet lots of women from all around the world and people working a lot of women they get through high school but then they fall through the cracks and it's very difficult for that first wave of literate women to realize their dreams this could be in cambodia or sudan or guatemala or um, south africa and so i was envisioning and i've been talking with colleges about this and i think several universities are going to figure this out very quickly before me um, to set up a global portal so that people could go online and directly sponsor somebody so they could get their college education. And when they get done, they could pay some of the money back and sponsor somebody else. It's similar. You've heard of Kiva. And this is where you give out microloans. So this would be for education. And so um, that's kind of what I want to get working on in a couple of years. But I'm, I'm always going to be. And the other thing is I mentioned about leveraging. So we, you know, we're only... We can never do what the governments can do over there, and it's their responsibility to get the people educated. We just want to provide a catalyst to get education going in areas where there is no education for girls, for you know religious extremism or because of wars or physical isolation. And then when we start a few schools, we get those communities to leverage with each other on the district and provincial level, and then eventually on the national government. So. By starting 200 schools, you know, eventually we can start 2,000 schools or um, or any kind of comparable number. And and the other thing is, I'd really like to. You know, one of the things that I feel really strongly about is there are a lot of things we can learn from those people and and um, about their heritage and their culture and learning from elders and the respect. And I really think it's important that. American people, if we really want to help in a in a good way and a in a sustainable way, there are things that we can learn from the people. So that involves mainly teaching American children. I like to you know talk to adults, but our real heart and focus is on kids in the U.S. because they really get it and they understand. And I call kids our greatest generation. Um, I don't know if some of you are aware of this, but um, there's a huge phenomenon going on in this country. It's called community service or service learning. Um, two decades ago, 
I mean, there was after World War II quite a bit, and then it went down. But in 1990, only 18% of college graduates said they want to go out and do something to make the world a better place. You know, like a, today it's 50%. And if you go down the high schools, 60 to 80% of kids in high schools in this country now have done some time, type of community service. It's like doubled in the last decade. So it's something I think we really should celebrate and encourage, you know, getting involved in your communities and, or it could be libraries or places of worship or, or civic groups or any, any kind of capacity. One pitch, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Can you talk about how your schools handle uh, the religious issue? Uh, yes, thanks. Um, well, we're required in both Pakistan and Afghanistan to teach, it's called Islamiant studies. It's about two or three hours a week. Um, we're also required by both governments to teach, um, well, it varies. In Afghanistan, it's Dari, Pashto, and then you go over to Pakistan, it's Urdu, English, and then they learn Arabic, and then, and then they also speak their tribal tongue. So by fifth grade, many of our students, they can speak or they know five languages. But one of the things we, this is back to your question about religious studies, one of the things we insist in our schools is children learn English and Arabic. And the most flack we get are from the mullahs. They say, you cannot teach Arabic in your schools. We say, well, we're following the government, but we teach them how to read, write, and understand Arabic. And when they can understand Arabic, they can understand that in the Quran, nothing says girls can't go to school. The first word of the revelation to Muhammad the prophet in the Quran is the Arabic word ikra. Ikra means read. So basically, it's the first utterance of Allah saying, you go out and read, seek the truth. Um, also, in the Quran, the worst two sins one can commit are suicide and the killing of civilians. So, um, and maybe I'll just briefly explain. Do you, do you know about what a madrasa means? And you know, everybody thinks a madrasa is a place of evil, but 99% madrasa means school. And 99% of madrasas are like bar mitzvah or confirmation or catechism. Children learn about the Quran and Islam. But there has been proliferation of extremist madrasas in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, according to Ahmed Rashid in 1980, there were 800 extremist madrasas, and today there's 4,000, uh, 25,000, and there are 4 million boys in those madrasas. Now, in those madrasas, they're learning how to read Arabic, but they don't know what it means. They're just, you know, uh, reciting by, by, uh, by rote. And so um, I feel it's very important that you know, if we're required to teach Arabic, we're going to teach them how to read, write, and understand Arabic. And then, um, and then you, it's really amazing seeing that when the women learn about what's in the Quran, um, that can really start to have a significant impact on, on a society. So um, that's, um, that's what we're doing, I guess. We also, um, in 2004, President Musharraf asked me to be on a curriculum reform committee in Pakistan. And the, the irony is he asked me to be on the committee because in Pakistan, in the most areas of sectarian violence between the Sunni and Shias, what we did is we very gently introduced the difference between Sunnis and Shias in the schools. Um, they are taught a very 
kind of jingoistic type of Islam that's anti-India or free Kashmir. It's not really about Islam, but it's about, you know, hatred towards India. And so we were wanting to focus more on the, the, really, the reality of what Islam was teaching and um, that um, the difference between... So we had a Sunni and a Shia imam come, and when they found out about that they're really not that much difference... Um, it really started having some impact in those communities that were torn by, you know, re religious strife between the Sunni and the Shias. Thank you for that. Thank you for your questions. Um, it's a very unusual audience. Most of the time when you have an audience that knows so much about a subject and they get ready to ask a question, there's a long declaration. <laughs> so your questions have been wonderful. Thank you. Um, we're going to turn it now to the uh, presentation that Greg wants to do with the, to give you a little more insight into what's going on. And um, I don't think we'll have any questions after that, but let's just conclude with this, okay? And I could, you know, maybe one more, if you, I could talk a little bit more about your question there. One of the ideas that I propose to the Pentagon and also to our government and also in Pakistan, Afghanistan is, in both of those countries, there's no proper theological seminaries where they can really learn about Islam. The, the brightest students are sent off to Saudi Arabia or Yemen or the Shias go to Iran, and they're brought back. But um, as opposed to Indonesia, where there's actually Islamic theological seminaries where they really learn about the virtues of Islam. And um, there's also, especially in Pakistan, now some... Um, sentiment or some anti there's some feelings about Arabization of Islam and there um, there's now some discussions heated discussions in the media um, to whether to say Khuda Hafiz or Allah Hafiz Allah Hafiz is the more pure term or Khuda Hafiz which is the, the more Arabic term and so it would be a proper you know there's, there's starting to be you know it's kind of maybe like the Reformation a little bit but um, you know, and I, I don't think the U.S., we can, we can establish theological <laughs> Islamic seminaries in those countries, but maybe with the help of Indonesia and some other countries, I don't know if this makes sense, but when it's like, you know, we came over from Europe and Africa and South America, wherever, uh, the Calvinists, Anabaptists and Catholics and Buddhists, whatever, and then, but our original people who went to seminaries, theological studies, they went back to those countries and then about 100 years later, we started having our own theological seminaries where we could really, you know, kind of come up within our own cultural context. So um, that to me, you know, these are some of the out-of-the-box ideas when I go to the Pentagon that we talk about. You know, imagine that, you know, talking to this in the, in the Pentagon about theological seminaries in Afghanistan. But this, these are some of the things that we talk about in the Pentagon. Great. I'll just... Um, I'll just, uh, a lot of people, I get a lot of criticism from some people. They say, how come you're talking to the military? So I would real briefly like to share with you what I do talk to the military about. Maybe that, you know, ignorance is the real enemy. So I'm going to just share with you real briefly. Can you go ahead? Is it? Can you keep going? This is my great-great-grandpa's school. Um, keep going here. This is the... 1868. Um, I also, I'm very passionate about the fact that there's 128 million children today in the world who aren't in school. And I, um, this is um, uh, 
kids in Congo who are harvesting cocoa, hundreds of thousands of kids who harvest cocoa, slave labor. And in Congo, even today, Congo is the area of most conflict in the world. Three million people have died in Congo in the last five or six years. Uh, tens of thousands of young boys and girls are turned into child soldiers. Um, and uh, the child labor in Pakistan making soccer balls or in uh, Cambodia, rice patties. So um, this is a general, uh, there's a play three cups of tea. Christian, when is that going to be? Wednesday morning. There's a guy who actually does a solo play three cups of tea. If you want to watch it, it's Wednesday morning. Oh, it's sold out. Okay, Black Box Theater. This is General David Petraeus, who's now our Afghanistan commander, previous CENTCOM commander. When he first read Three Cups of Tea, contacted me. And by the way, I'm going to be talking about four military generals here. They all read Three Cups of Tea, but none of them told me their wives read the book first. And uh, General Petraeus, no exception, his wife, Holly, read the book and put it on his bedside stand. Um, he said there are three important points from the book that he wanted to empire with the troops. So, um, and the first is that we need to listen more. Number two, we need to have respect. And number three, that we have to build relationships. This is Eric Olson. He's our Special Forces Commander. And I like his idea, which I think maybe could be incorporated into the government. Um, and they're starting this now in the Special Forces. Is a person is going to spend their entire career, like your whole NPR career in Johannesburg, but you go uh, to develop more Lawrence of Arabia's. People who are very, they've spent their you know entire career just focusing on one area. And right now, our Special Forces... A lot of them are focused on the Horn of Africa. That's where they think the real arrow is pointed in 10 or 20 years. And if you look at literacy, it's the same thing, female literacy. And um, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. Rather than moving people around so they get promoted, they're going to have to know the language, the culture, and uh, really be an expert in an area if they want to you know, have a, a career and um, to focus on one area. This is uh, General McChrystal. I think his the most significant contribution that he gave to both our country and Afghanistan is first he respected Hamid Karzai because he was the president. And then most of all, he's really changed and integrated the concept of uh, reducing civilian casualties. Now, there's still a lot of civilians who are killed by errant bombs, but um, he's, he's made it a real priority. Now, you know, we'll have to see what happens with our new leader here. So when I go talk to the military, I talk about how, you know, when we, when we talk to people or listen, we often look at our own myopic lens. This is how we think it should be, but it's important to look at how their perspective is. So um, comparing here between we think the Taliban is a monolithic entity, but they see it as a collective group of factions. We see everything as detailed complexity, but it's very static, but they see it as a kind of a fluid dynamic um, complexity. We see a lot of things as centralized. They see things as decentralized. We look at enemy-centric focus when, in fact, we should be looking at friendly-centric focus. So there are a lot of um, kind of these differences. And now um, I have my nine-year-old son, Kyber, develop this PowerPoint that I can show our senior military commanders because I don't know how to do this stuff. So <laughs> this is... Um, this is um, 
This is showing why it's so imperative that we respect elders. The why are the youth, those little, why the, they're bubbles, like Kyber calls them bubbles. Um, the E are the elders and the M are the mullahs. So you see how traditional society is based on the relationship between the elders and the youth. And this is a beautiful, dynamic um, society that goes back 2,000 years. And then there's a very loose central government but over time, because of outside forces, there was the communism and then the invasion of the Soviet Union and then the collapse and then a period of anarchy, the Taliban, and then um, more recently, uh, since 9-11, the outside forces have been in the country. So over time, the um, whole the central government collapses. And also you'll see the youth then going off to the mullahs, or the, the fighters, sorry. And it starts to disrupt civil society. So here fighters are coming in, they become the role models and the heroes instead of the elders and the mullahs, the youth go off to the fighters, and then you'll see MR means a radical mullah. This is somebody who's propagating militant ideology. And then you'll see um, the central government's totally collapsed, also identity, purpose in life, and there's no income, so they're going to find something that they can aspire to for hope. And then on the right-hand side, you'll see the Afghan-Pakistan border, does this make sense to you at all? Or? Okay. A nine-year-old did this, so <laughs> I can't do this kind of stuff. Um, and then the, a coalition starts to form between the fighters and the radical mullahs, but you'll see um, now how the youth have completely gone off, and they're not involved with the elders, and their uh, role models are the fighters. Okay. Um, here's, I just, this is a little bit, trying to make a little humor, but also to really to really dramatically show the difference. Um, 20, 220,000 coalition troops fighting 25,000 Taliban. Operation Enduring Freedom budget is $74 billion. Now, the Taliban, I have no clue what their budget is. I know it involves some goats and some maybe $20 million, but you know, just look at the difference of that. Um, we have tanks, APCs, armored carriers. They have motorcycles, donkeys, and IEDs. We have at least 300,000 firearms, probably more, and the Taliban have maybe 25,000 firearms. You know, they maybe one AK-47 each. And these are not, you know, some of this I just kind of trying to show you the point here. Um, all of the mineral water, all water drinking by the U.S. and ISAF forces has to be flown in. It's mineral water. This, you know, um, 130,000 troops, mineral water flown in from Dubai every day. And then this is very what I was talking about growing up in Africa. This is the f hospital my father started, but he always wanted the local people to be in charge. And this is the quote that you mentioned earlier, Charlene, about um, educating a community or a nation. Why don't we go? Um, this is the three cups of tea story here. So then I stumble into a little village, and there's Haji Ali in the back. And from Haji Ali, I learned two lessons. One is three cups of tea. Do you know what three cups of tea means? Okay. First cup, you're a stranger. Second, a friend. And third cup, your family. The other lesson I learned from him is to sit down and be quiet and let them do the work. And one day, after three years, he took my receipts, plumb line, he locked them up. He came back and said, there, don't you worry. I'll, I'll take care of everything. And I was horrified. And guess what happened? The school got built. This is uh, the pennies.
for peace fundraising. Do you want to hear a love story? The women do, okay. What's the time like? This is my wife, Tara Bishop, and she's the daughter of uh, Barry Bishop, who was a National Geographic editor, and he was the photographer on the 63 American Everest expedition. And he was tragically killed in 94 in a car accident. A year later, I met Tara at a fundraising dinner in San Francisco, and six days later, we got married. And so now we're living happily after. And but it's really Tara who's really the reason I can do this. Uh, my mother-in-law also lives a block away, and um, my mother comes to live with us. So we have a really strong family. And, you know, I really owe this all to Tara and my family and our community for being able to be able to do this. Um, so, Haji Ali, one day, this is after three years of toil and agony and sweat, and I was just, you know, I was basically trying to micromanage a school, and I didn't think it was going to get finished, and then Haji Ali took everything away. He said, don't you worry, and then this is what happened six weeks later, the school got built. But that's really the premise now of all our work, that we provide the skilled labor and materials, but the community has to give free land free resources, just as Haji Ali had advocated. Here's what I was talking about, girls' education. Um, and then, can you go to this? Here's um, this, um, the fact that the Taliban have bombed or destroyed 2,100 schools. And then the good news is, this figure now that you've heard three times, maybe three times you can remember this. And if there's one thing that you could go out and tell your our leaders and maybe on NPR sometime, um, just share this with American people. When I talk to U.S. Marines deploying to Afghanistan, and I tell them this, they will come up with tears in their eyes afterwards and say, thank you for sharing us one good piece of news. That alone gives us hope for what we have to do. And I think, you know, we should celebrate this. This is an amazing thing that has happened in that country. And I really think this is the road for peace for that country is, is in the girls and the students being able to go to school. Um, this is Admiral Mullen. He's the, basically the boss of the military, Chairman Joint Chief of Staff. But just to show you his understanding and visionary leadership, um, he gave a speech at the American Legion National Convention in Louisville, Kentucky last year. And this is an excerpt from the beginning of his speech. He said, historically, we, mean the United States, we have been far too arrogant in the world, and we need to go out and serve with humility. And then he said, the Muslim community is a subtle world, which we don't fully and don't always attempt to understand. Only through shared appreciation of the people's cultures and needs and hopes can we ourselves hope to supplant the extremist narrative. And then he said, we cannot capture hearts and minds. We must engage them. We must listen to them one heart, one mind at a time over time. Admiral Mike Mullen. This is, the, this is our boss of the military saying this. So to me, it's quite profound what he's saying about listening. And these are some Afghan militia commanders, except me. You see the scared white guy without the beard? And they pretty much say the same thing, that without education, nothing will change in their society. And um, when they were, just became teenagers in 79, when the Soviet Union invaded their country, they were given weapons, and they're forced to fight the invaded Soviet Union. And they regret the fact that they never were able to get their education. And if you spend some time with them, um, they, 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 they're being veterans, they love to share their war stories. 
but this is where I got the title for Stones into Schools. In those stories, they often reflect on their battles and skirmishes in the mountains, and then they'll tell me, do you see those boulders and stones up there? Every one of those stones is a Shahid or martyr who died fighting our enemies. So now we must turn those stones into schools and make their sacrifice worthwhile. In uh, 2001, Haji Ali's wife, Sakina, died, and he was very devastated. And they had been married about 50 years, and he was—he actually, although he was a very brusque man, he did show quite a bit of affection for his wife. And when we went to see her grave, he stood there and said that he was, he said, I, without her, I'm nothing, which is very rare to hear a male say that there. And then he said something that I never forget. He said, soon you'll be standing here and I'm going to be in the ground. And he kind of laughed and thought, you know, that's not very funny about you dying, but um, that's what happened. Um, he soon died uh, after 9-11. And when I went, I went to his grave in October 2001, and I stood there, and I tried to find some reason for that. And, and I remember him telling me, when you come to this moment and you see me in the ground, just do one thing, listen to the wind. And I didn't realize what he had been saying to me, but what I did is I listened to the wind, and then in the wind I heard the voices of the children of school. So he, the message he was telling me is that through education there was hope for his people. And Haji Ali... Some of you have heard me say this before. <laughs> Haji Ali, he loved to read. and In the evenings, he would sit on a little rickety bed. He had, a, he had um, thick goggle glasses, and he, had, he only read two books, the Quran and Persian poetry. But often when he read, he was sad, or he'd have a tear going down his cheek. And so I asked Haji one day, why are you sad when you read? And Haji Ali said, he said, well, Greg, actually, I don't know how to read. And that was the day he told me he was illiterate. He said he had memorized these books. And then he, he showed me how in his book he had flicked the pages and put in twigs and piece of paper. He said, it's my life's greatest sadness that I never learned how to read and write. And then he said, it's my life's greatest hope that my children and grandchildren can learn to read and write. And then in his exact words, what Haji Ali said is, he said, these words in these books make the stories that make wise the fools. And by fools, he meant illiteracy and ignorance. And if you knew Haji Ali, he only left his village once to go on a pilgrimage. He didn't have a phone or he didn't have a um, newspaper. He didn't have a TV. He didn't have um, texting or Twittering or any of that stuff. But he knew it was through education was a can of hope for all his people. And I really think, you know, it's, it's amazing to think that an illiterate man from such a remote village without any access to the outside world, even he knew that education was, was a hope for all his people. So again, these are the these uh, Shura from Urazgan, and here they are on their swing at Charsiab Valley. <laughs> and when you talk to Haji Ibrahim, you know, he'll tell you as a child, he never had a chance to play. He grew up in refugee camps. He grew up in war. He was taught how to hate. He was taught how to kill. And um, I, I really think um, one of the things we also do in our schools is we have playgrounds. And I, you know, I, 
I'm concerned in this country because now we're trying to bring Internet all the way down into kindergarten and first grade, and I don't think kids need to get on the Internet or wired at a young age. They need to go out and play, and they need to have disputes, and they need to have arbitrations, and they need to learn how to get along. And um, I also really think that every single child in this country should be bilingual. I think it's imperative that we um, have bilingual education in this country. So this is um, kind of a weird um, maybe photo here, and it, I've never showed this in public. I, um, this is um, in honor of Abdul Rashid Khan, who is the leader of the Kyrgyz people in this Stones into Schools book. And he sent his emissaries over a pass in 1998-99 to come and ask us to build a school in Afghanistan. Um, if I really, in um, I was talking about elders, but in the cultures, in like in the Balti people of uh, northeast Pakistan, there's the uh, Kesar Khan story. It's the ballad or the oracle of the creation and and the life and how everything came to be. And in the Kyrgyz culture, is called the Manas. This is also a, a ballad or odyssey. And in the Manas, um, um, near the end of the Manas, is a story about um, Pegas Pegasus. How do you say it in English? Pegasus, okay. <laughs> Pegasus. And um, in Pegasus comes originally in the Manas as a as a winged horse, but very violent, bring a lot of um, turmoil and destruction. And um, um, Abdul Shid Khan uh, perceived that as in his visions as the uh, Soviet helicopters coming and bombing and destroying his people. And when the Soviets came into northeast Afghanistan, half of the Kyrgyz fled to Pakistan, and now, now they settled in the Anatolia in, uh, in Turkey. But some of the people remained, and there's a bright star in the saddle of the horse called the markab, and that is the saddle, or, or at the you see the markab there. And uh, when that star starts start shining bright, then this flying horse becomes um, um, a what do you say, a beneficent, a ben beneficial horse, and not a, a winged horse that brings terror and destruction to the people, and so. Uh, very recently, when when Abdul Shid Khan was dying, I asked the Chinese, the Pakistan, I asked the Tajik people, I asked the U.S. military if they could go and help him, bring him to a hospital. He was in a very remote area in Afghanistan, but everybody told me he's too far away, it's too dangerous, too difficult to get to this place. And I didn't know it at the time, but a, a U.S. Um, um, helicopter pilot named uh, Colonel Oli Holm, good Norwegian, he actually was the one who turned down the mission to go get Abdul Rashid Khan. So um, this recently, during the week that General McChrystal was fired, it was Oli Holmes' last week in the military, but he um, was able to deliver a massive amount of um, aid, uh, generators and some school building equipment up to the um, people there, and he put this on the front of the helicopter. And I guess, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to you know, bring together reality and myth and the tradition and these ballads that go back, you know, 2,000 years. But um, I think, um, you know, Abdul Rashid Khan, his, um, his, his vision, his, um, the bright star shining now has been changed where he can see us or others 
who are coming to help him and not to destroy him. I don't know if that all makes sense, but I'm not a <laughs> ballad person. But that's how people talk about things, and their their ballads or their oracles and odysseys come true. And I think if we can cling to that, that there's, there is still is hope. And the people in Afghanistan and Pakistan, they still believe that they can have a better future. They also want to be empowered more. They want to have us listen to their elders and they're also grateful the fact that Americans, we are very compassionate people. We, we only hear about the people who hate us. And there's no, most people actually really appreciate what we're doing, but we do need to listen to them more and involve them in decision-making and, and empowering the people. So uh, that's it. Thanks. Thank you.